Great. So we're going to do, this is a, a, a change in our, in our teaching. Uh, we, we're doing a, this is a, a two, two week, two parter. So, we, so the last, the last two weeks, Andrew has spoken about housing and, um, had two particular talks on what we're doing with, with housing as a church. Uh, and as always, you can catch up with those on, online if you've missed the, if you've missed the talks. Um, now for these next two weeks, uh, uh, so in three weeks' time, we got our church weekend away, and uh, and so we won't have a, won't have a service here then. Uh, oh, oh, it's two weeks' time. Yeah, it's the twenty second of. What's today? It's the eighth, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So I'm thinking it's three Sundays' time, including today. You're, yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah. So um, uh, so this Sunday and next Sunday, Alice is going to be doing a two-parter on sexuality. And as she'll probably say, this is the only question, or the main question we get asked about uh, us as a church. So, um, Christy's going to come and pray, isn't he? Where is he? Here he is. Great. Hello, I'm Christy. People who don't know me. I just want to pray for Alice today. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask the, the Holy Spirit to speak through her. I love listening to Alice speak. I always feel Alice when she uses the words from the, from the Spirit. It's different from hearing things from a book. And, you know, and I can't wait for, um, to hear this talk and I'm going to bless her. You know, and Jesus said, two people or more in my name, I'll be there. So I'm asking, you know, I'm knocking on his door and asking for the Spirit to speak through Alice today and give us another great lesson from a great lady. Amen. Thanks, Christy. <laughs> great. My two primary school age sons were looking through their enormous pile of football cards one morning recently and found one premiership player who had recently been accused of rape. He was in prison, but had not yet received a guilty verdict. So we are burning his football cards, they declared. Unwittingly, my two young sons had captured the ethical line that's been drawn around sex in the 21st century, consent. Good, righteous, clean people are consenting. Bad, unrighteous, unclean people are coercive. And as a Christian, I would agree in terms of consent. We will see in the biblical perspective on sex that what distinguishes the ancient world from the modern is the shift from coercion to consent. Our modern ideas of consent can be traced back to the new kind of kingdom which Jesus inaugurated, a kingdom which for the first time in human history was built not on domination but on sacrificial, invitational servant leadership. Welcome to Hope, for those who have never been here before. I am really excited today to be talking about gender, sex and sexuality, male and female, what would be called heteronormative in our current cultural context, and then next week, sex, sexuality and gender, LGBTQ+. So it's like Netflix, it's like you've got to come to part two, can't just stop today. And I want to make clear three things. These are ground rules for how we're approaching this. First and foremost, we're a family. I will share where Chris and I are at currently with our convictions around this topic. 
I'm a learner. I always learn and expect to grow and change over time. I learnt new things researching for this and really enjoyed the process. Although the elder team are wholly supportive of me speaking, this does not even necessarily represent the position of individuals within the elder team. We're relational, ask people what they think, get to know them, have healthy, functional conversations. And whilst I am aware that as the pastors, what Chris and I think matters, as the pastors, we're also seeking to build a culture where our relational connection as family in Christ is more robust than our positions on particular topics. We would love to have a family where we can hold a range of perspectives and responses to these issues and still do the deep, good work of faith of loving one another well. Secondly, and perhaps more pertinently, even in that first point, I'm aware we all inhabit this world in bodies. I will share more of my story. In fact, I'm only going to share my story next week, although I believe in vulnerability and would love to have squeezed it in this week. There just isn't enough time. So I'm going to be sharing a bit more of my story next week. But suffice to say, we are an embodied humanity. We don't relate to people from our spirit somewhere else. We relate in bodies to other people in bodies. So therefore, this topic is not only of sort of intellectual or theological interest, but it is deeply personal, deeply vulnerable, and potentially painful for each one of us and those we love. I want to name that and honour that. And thirdly, critically, we would be doing everyone a disservice if we weren't teaching what to think. What we're aiming to do is not teach anyone what to think. We don't need to be taught what to think. What we need to learn is how to think. So you will see very little application here, a lot of cultural immersion in the ancient world and first century Judaism, and a reliance on the Holy Spirit to enable us how to think and therefore how to apply in our lives in vastly different cultures. What I love the outcome of this to be as followers of Jesus in community is that we can navigate any area of life well because we've been taught how to think in such a way that leads to human flourishing everywhere we find it. So, in the Garden of Eden narratives in Genesis 2 and 3, humanity was given a choice to rule by God's wisdom or redefine good and evil in our own understanding and live by our own wisdom. We've been authorized and created to rule, and the choice was whose wisdom are we going to rule by, God's or our own? In every culture and age, therefore, ethical lines are drawn. There are cultural agreements as to what society deems good and evil. A person, family, community is in if they live by those cultural definitions of good and evil, And they are out if they don't. So the first thing we all as Christians have to do in any cultural context is ask and think, where are the ethical lines being drawn? What is considered good and evil in this area of our culture? And one of the answers, as I've already indicated, culturally is consent. The next thing a Christian community needs to do regarding understanding what it looks like to follow Jesus in a particular area is to look for the, to the Bible for wisdom. 
what is the Bible? What does that mean? Go to the Bible for wisdom. It's an ancient text, reading in translation, in a culture vastly different from ours. How do we go to the Bible for wisdom? The Bible is primarily a messianic text. That is, it testifies to the reality of a Messiah, an anointed human. That's what the Bible is. It's a lot of things, but the main thing it's doing is testifying to an anointed human. The first three quarters of the Bible, which we call the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, all paint a silhouette of an anointed human, a Messiah who is to come. And the last quarter, the New Testament, authors show that the anointed human has come in the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth. In his life, death and resurrection, a new humanity and a new creation is inaugurated. We have the first PowerPoint. Which will be consummated on his return. As those who live between the inauguration and the consummation of the new creation, we follow Jesus within the tension of what's been known as the now and the not yet of God's good kingdom on earth. I'm immensely indebted to the Bible Project's online classroom Ephesians for this helpful lens through which we read reality. We live in the centre of that Venn diagram, moving away from evil, sin and death, slavery, violence, which was dealt with fully through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, and moving to the new creation, marked by justice, love, life, freedom, shalom, blessings, And we live in the tension of that. And we feel that tension in our bodies every single day. The work of the intelligent, thoughtful, reading, learning Christian community is to seek to listen to the biblical authors on their own terms. Not be cultural colonialists and not go with an agenda, just to listen to them on their own terms. In the cultural context of, in the Hebrew Bible, the ancient Near East, and in the New Testament, the Greco-Roman world, and first century Judaism. We need to glean the wisdom they're communicating, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, apply that wisdom in cultures that are vastly different from those. I love here how John Mark Comer reflects on the Bible and dating in his book, Loveology. I have a bibliography at the end of this, which will be on a slide on the, on the PowerPoints on the, on the website. Now, the scriptures say nothing about dating. Dating is less than 100 years old. The scriptures were written thousands of years ago in a different language on a different continent to a different culture. The scriptures don't tell you how to date or anything, whatever your style is. Every form of romance has its pros and cons. And any attempt to claim one is biblical is doomed to failure. If you want to argue for what's in the Bible, technically it's arranged marriage. And aside from a few overprotective parents, I don't think anybody wants to go back to that. Although one study of American and Indian marriages found that on average by the 10-year anniversary, couples with arranged marriages were far happier than couples who married for love. So to sum up, this is how we think. Firstly, we seek to understand where the ethical lines are being drawn in our culture. 
Secondly, what the biblical authors are communicating in their culture, in order, thirdly, that we can glean wisdom for personal application. We have to weigh up what aspects of culture's redefinition of good and evil we can live with, with a clear conscience. This is absolutely critical. Some of the redefinitions will align with us because all humans, including lawmakers, are image bearers and they still carry a conscience. For those of us in the West, this is particularly acute as despite being ostensibly post-Christian, we still in reality have an entangled complex relationship with Christian thinking and ideals in virtually every area of our life and practice. There will be aspects of our culture that we can therefore endorse, for example, the idea of consent, and other aspects which we may actively resist as being counter to what it looks like to follow Jesus. But what does healthy, functional, liberating resistance look like? This prophetic resistance primarily looks like building countercultural, multi-generational, multicultural communities which anticipate the new creation in such a compelling way that those hungry and thirsty for life will want to be a part of these communities. For some, there is a distinct call to be a prophetic voice in culture, to proclaim the good news about Jesus in language that makes sense and people understand. This voice will always be authorised through powerful testimony, healings, miracles, liberating words that testify to the good reality of God. So, where are we culturally? If we can go to the bibliography, which is the very last slide, I just want to acknowledge uh, some of the people. Particularly, I want to acknowledge John Tyson. He he does a series called the Controversial Jesus Series, on, and we're going to be quoting from him a few times now. Sexual formation, Jesus and the gay community, Jesus, gender, and the trans community. And so I'm going to be quoting from them. And later on, David Instone Brewer also has some podcasts. So people who prefer podcasts found some podcasts as well as books. So going back to that, the original clip we had, and this is thanks to John Tyson. So Mary Eberstadt describes our cultural moment in Adam and Eve after the pill. She says, we're experiencing the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting adults. Over time, this has led to the complete removal of any boundaries around sexual orientation or activity. Whilst I will specifically address LGBTQ+, next week, sexologist Carol Queen describes this brave new world. It's a simple yet radical affirmation that we each grow our own passions on a different medium, that instead of having two or three or even half a dozen sexual orientations, we should be thinking in terms of millions. Sex positive respects each of our unique sexual profiles, even as we acknowledge that some of us have been damaged by a culture that tries to eradicate sex difference and possibility. The sexual revolution combined with the digital revolution has produced the perfect storm called Tinder, Now, I understand that this kind of article, which I'm about to quote from, is good for clickbait and will therefore probably incorporate the more extreme stories people are prepared to tell in mainstream magazines. But it does give a a taste of the life of sexual freedom in Manhattan pre-2008. 
COVID. This is an article called Tinder and Hookup Culture Promotion by Vanity Fair. You can talk to two or three girls at a bar and pick the best one, or you can swipe a couple of hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. Then setting up two or three Tinder dates a week, and the chances are sleeping with all of them, so you can rack up a hundred girls that you've slept with in a year. There is the concept of the Tinderella, a girl you meet and land before midnight. There is the concept of the Tinder King, a guy who can get a woman into bed with a very strong text game or maybe only using emojis. And when a woman wants free meals, she calls it Tinder food stamps. There's been controversy amongst many thinkers, including feminists, as to whether this free sex has ultimately been good for women and, I would add, men, even from a biological evolutionary perspective. And this is from this excellent writer, apologist, Rebecca McLaughlin. Experts have interviewed thousands of people to find out whether having lots of sexual relationships makes them happy. And it turns out, in general, it doesn't. A loving marriage tends to make both men and women happier. But having sexual relationships with lots of different people tends to make us less happy. Like eating too much candy, it might feel good in the moment, but the after effects can be miserable. According to research, this is especially true of women. And also, John Mark Comer's cites other studies. Study after study shows that people with the best sex lives are monogamous, heterosexual married couples who had few or no partners before marriage, and the reciprocal is true. The people who report the lowest levels of sexual satisfaction are promiscuous singles with frequent sexual encounters. So that's our cultural moment, a taste of it. How are we to live as followers of Jesus? What does the Bible say about sex, sexuality and gender? Firstly, we want to give a brief cultural setting of the ancient Near East and Greco-Roman culture. I won't cover everything. There'll be aspects of LGBTQ narrative that I'll be covering next week, particularly as regards to Greco-Roman culture. The only creation account in the entire Near East, and they had a few ancient uh, creation accounts, which includes the creation account of a woman, is in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Sons were really important. They were useful in close combat, agricultural labor, and reproduction through polygamy, which is a common practice in the ancient world. Sons were your pension, life insurance, and your greatest asset. Fathers primarily had jurisdiction over rights over their children. Concubines, you'll find them in the Bible, very strange word. Women who lived with, rather than were married to men, had no legal rights to their own children. Kings would have a vast harem, both as a status symbol and as a means of securing political alliances. Conquering armies would often castrate pre-adolescent boys so that they would not grow up to form a rival dynasty and overthrow their conquerors. These were called eunuchs, you'll come across them in the Bible as well, and despite being lowly in society, could often hold positions of great political trust, e.g. in court, over the harem, or over royal finances. Conquering armies would rape women. This is from David Instone Brewer, excellent book on divorce and remarriage in the church. He talks about this practice of abandoning women. A man was allowed to walk out on his wife and children at any time without having to leave her any money or property or pay for her inheritance. 
And if her husband came back, he could reclaim her and the children. So the woman was left in this horrendous position where she couldn't remarry because her new husband wouldn't want to remarry her because the old husband might come back and claim not only their children, but the children from a new marriage. So there was nothing, there were no certificates of divorce issued by or for women. In one Middle Assyrian law from about 1400 BC was a little more humane than all the other laws of the ancient Near East, apart from the Mosaic law, I hasten to add, because it did allow an abandoned woman to be free after five years. Moving on to Greco-Roman culture, and this is from Matthew Vines, God and the Gay Christian. In ancient Greece and Rome, women were associated with all that was weak, cowardly, irrational and self-indulgent. Aristotle argued that girls were born only when something went wrong in the womb. Had the fetus truly reached its potential, he said, it would become a boy. He concluded that the female, as it were, is a deformed male. Even Plato, who's considered to be the most pro-women of the ancient Greek philosophers, believed that men who were cowardly or unrighteous would be reincarnated as women. Similarly, Josephus' statement was that women are inferior in every aspect to men, and according to Philo, femininity is a disease. Because Roman men and women were both having sex with both men and women, there was this sort of moral decay, and the moral philosophers at the time wanted to recover some of the order of the ancient Aristotelian model of the household. If we could go to the next one. So this is really common across the ancient world, this household model. And I'm now going to quote from uh, Tim Mackey's Bible Project on his online classroom, Ephesians, straight from Aristotle's politics about how the state is made up of households and to try and stop the rot of decay in Roman culture because everyone was having illegal Roman citizens. They needed legal sons to keep building the empire. Everyone was having sons through affairs. They needed to get people married. So they were recovering this Aristotelian model. It's really important to understand this, to understand a lot of Paul's writings in the New Testament because he connects culturally very shrewdly with this. So this is Aristotle in his work, Politics. Seeing then that the state is made up of households, Before speaking of the state, we must speak of the management of the household. The parts of the household management correspond to persons who comprise the household, and a complete household comprises of slaves and freemen. Now we should begin by examining everything in its fewest possible elements, and the first and fewest possible parts of the family are the master and the slave, the husband and the wife, the father and the children. Later, he says, a husband and father we saw rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being royal, and the rule over his wife is based on natural constitution. For although there may be exceptions in the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the elder and full-grown is superior to the younger and immature. So God inspires biblical authors to write in these cultural contexts. In no way does this mean they endorse these contexts. Rather, we will see how in many ways they bring a prophetic voice critiquing and subverting these cultural contexts, seeking to recover God's definition of good and evil in such a way that genuinely leads to human flourishing. So, next one. 
All that to say, so the best way to understand God's design for sex, sexuality and gender is to cross over the cultural river which divides us from the biblical world, immerse ourselves in the biblical text, understanding what it means for the original authors, and then come back with wisdom for today. So in the stunning, highly stylized account of the creation of humanity in Genesis 1, we see that all humans, male and female, are created in the image of the creator in partnership to rule over creation on God's behalf. The momentum of the literary origami of chapter 1 climaxes on the first poem in the Bible. The creation of humanity is then described as exceedingly good. If we could go to the next... God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule. God saw that all he had made, and it was very good. Sex is very good. The first creation mandate is a blessing to reproduce. God creates humans in his image, splits them into male and female, and blesses humans to reproduce, spread, and fill the whole earth through becoming one again, through having sex. From Genesis 1, we can learn that sex is for pleasure, for reproduction, and in some way, a prophetic insight into what God is like. Moving on now to Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, we see a more earthly account of the creation of humanity. Adam, or human in Hebrew, is formed first, and then having named the animals but found no partner suitable, he is laid down into a deep sleep, and Eve is formed from his side. When he wakes up, he sees her. He expresses the intensity of his emotion in the second poem, in the biblical narrative. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. In both texts, there is a separation and then a coming together again. Elohim is split into male and female. Adam, the human or the man, is split into man and woman. While this is exceedingly good, the first thing that is not good in the Bible in Genesis 2 is Adam or the human alone. The man and the woman become one when they have sex. This is not just a physical act, it's a covenantal act. Two distinct units become one flesh. This same one, word one, is used later to communicate the essential oneness within the Binitarian, if you're Jewish, and Trinitarian Godhead in, in Moses' Torah. This one flesh unit with two distinct beings produces humans in their likeness. These children grow up, and when they come of age, they leave the covenantal covering of their family unit, become one flesh with the covenantal spouse, and start a covenantal family of their own. Moving on to Genesis 3, life east of Eden, or after the fall, after humanity's decision to rule in their own wisdom. A shining being, a serpent, approaches Eve, a spiritual being, and we find out as well, Adam's there with her. She is deceived into believing that God is not good, that he's not, she is not godlike, and it would be infinitely better if she ruled in her own wisdom. Adam and Eve and the snake all receive consequences for their choice to rule in their own wisdom. For Eve, for all women, conception is marked by grief. From now on, instead of only experiencing pleasure in sex, that sex is very good and childbirth is relatively pain-free, women would be subject to rape, 
the shame of infertility, not having property but becoming property, comparison with other women, rejection and abandonment, domestic violence, vulnerability to mortality and childbearing and rearing to start the list. It just became a lot harder to be a woman. For Adam, for all men, the ground is cursed. From now on, instead of only experiencing ease with regards to the fruitful and abundant work in Eden that they were co-commissioned to do, the ground is subject to famine, bad weather, disease, infestations. And moreover, for most of human history, most men at times from when they are children upwards have been expected to fight in tribal conflicts and wars. It just became a lot harder to be a man. For the snake, the messianic profile begins. You will bite the heel of an offspring of Eve, but he will crush your head. And at this point, polygamy enters into the human condition. There's a a rabbinic principle of first reading or the first time something comes up in the Hebrew Bible, which helps you understand in a very subtle, nuanced way a narrator's um, perspective on it. And the first account of polygamy is in a narrative. Seven lines from Adam through Cain, who is renowned for to violently and jealously killing his brother, is a man called Lamech. Seven is the personification, is, is a wholeness and a fullness in Jewish thinking. He becomes the personification of violence. He boasts in a poem of killing, a song of killing a young man, who possibly a boy who had only wounded him, and he takes two wives. We learn that east of Eden, after the fall, humans rule according to their own wisdom in the biblical narrative. And this inevitably leads to the devaluing and destruction of human life. We also learn that Yahweh does intervene, but only very occasionally. Most of the time, Yahweh hands people over to bear the weight of the consequences of their actions. We see this right through, and Paul talks about it still in the New Testament in Romans, until people recognize for themselves, rather than having to be told, why it's wiser to live with God's perspective rather than their own. Only when societies have already set their own decreation button does he accelerate it in order mercifully to save them from the long and torturous route of decreation without divine escalation. But God has a plan to restore humanity through a chosen family and nation, Israel, When this family are delivered from slavery in Egypt, they effectively enter into a marriage covenant. And one lens through which you can read the Hebrew Bible is a marriage relationship that starts at Sinai and ends in divorce at the exile in Babylon between God and the people of Israel. When this family, they effectively enter into a marriage covenant with Yahweh and the Ten Commandments, which you've probably heard of, are about a part of 613 laws which constitute the T's and C's of this marriage covenant. Just as in the Ten, so as in the 613, about 40% address issues of worship of Yahweh, recovering his presence like he used to be amongst them and with them in Eden. 40% address issues of social justice and 20% of sexual practices. About 19% of those sexual practices are prohibiting two specific things. Close sexual relations, common practice in Egypt and Canaan, and adultery, having sex with someone where you were already married to someone else or they were already married to someone else. Also, rape is prohibited. Selling your daughters into prostitution is prohibited. And receiving any income from 
from prostitution and giving it as a tithe to Yahweh is prohibited. Common practice, again, in the ancient Near East, where pagan worship was often associated with having sex. Polygamy was not completely prohibited. It was regulated to protect the rights of children and wives. And in the case of a king, forbid the practice of a harem. Divorce was permitted on four grounds. This continues through to the New Testament, to first century Judaism, and Jesus and Paul in different ways both affirm these four reasons. Adultery, withholding food or clothes, i.e. withholding a mutual contribution to financial support, and conjugal rights, withholding sex and physical affection. Divorce enabled a woman to be protected legally in the event of her husband suing for divorce and released people to get remarried without committing adultery. These are some of the laws around sexual practices that the nation of Israel say yes to. And initially, they are determined to give their unswerving loyalty to Yahweh amongst the other gods of the nations. However, tragically, the story of Israel is one likened to spiritual adultery. They repeatedly, flagrantly, wholeheartedly and stubbornly worship the gods of the nations around them, including their practices. The kingdom divides, the northern kingdom goes to Assyria, the southern kingdom only of Judah remains as God's like to the nations. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God finally initiates a divorce with the people of Judah. The person who initiates the divorce biblically is not the person sinning, it's the person saying the marriage is over. Whoever breaks the marriage vows is the sinner. And in this case, they've had about a thousand year history of repeated adultery. There's a very graphic language in chapter 16, which likens Judah's idolatry, the worship of the gods of the nations around them, to a wife not only having sex publicly with multiple partners, but actually paying all those men for her to have sex with them. At this point, he initiates divorce, and they go to exile in Babylon. Jeremiah, another prophet, is brokenhearted because he knows that when you divorce, according to Torah, you can't marry the same woman again. But God brings a promise through Jeremiah, he's going to form a new kind of humanity, a humanity that will have a new covenant and will want and desire unswerving loyalty to Yahweh. Thrown in there as well is this beautiful erotic love poem, Song of Songs, the rabbis see it as the Holy of Holies. This song celebrates the erotic love between a man and a woman who, where both lovers take initiative in the relationship. So at its best in the Hebrew Bible, sex remains exceedingly good, as in Genesis 1 to 2. However, it is also unrelentingly honest about humanity's failure to recover Eden. Metaphorically, even God himself is subject to the immense pain and brokenheartedness that sex east of Eden can deliver. The Judaism in the first century, this is the time where the New Testament was written and Jesus came, was born into this earth, was a product of terrible suffering under Greek rule. Inheritors of those persecuted, as is often the way through history, built a hedge of protection around Moses' law to keep it safe from the onslaught of Greco-Roman paganism. 
Jesus often came into confrontation with Pharisees, the religious elite of the time, who were obsessed with the letter of the law, but ignored completely the spirit of the law. Meanwhile, across the Greco-Roman world, thousands of Gentiles were drawn to the the monotheism and the family values of Judaism and were known as God-fearers and acts, rejecting the Greco-Roman paganism of their compatriots. So now what we're going to look at in terms of how to think is how Jesus deals with his highly religious context and how Paul deals with his highly permissive context. Completely different. You couldn't get more different than the Judaism of the first century and the Greco-Roman culture of the first century. And between them, they're brilliant examples of how we can live well in this life now. So Jesus never teaches at all on sexual immorality in terms of actions unless on one occasion he's specifically asked about an issue on divorce. He only ever teaches it on the inner life that we all need restoration from within. His culture was highly religious. Everyone knew the Torah off by heart. The the issue in his highly religious culture was the levels of shame and condemnation placed on people who did not live up in their actions, not in their heart condition, but in their actions to the Mosaic law and its hedge of protection. Jesus was kind, he was compassionate, he was courageous, and he was radically countercultural. He raised the bar on sexual purity. It's actually harder, impossible, I would say, for the old nature to live into the purity that Jesus calls us to. But he gives us a new nature, and that's how we, we can all do it. He didn't just say adultery was actually having sex with someone else's marriage partner. He said lust, the repeated fantasy about anyone else, is like committing adultery. He gets to the thought life and the heart life, whilst always protecting those who are subject to shame and condemnation. And this is a non-negotiable value that we have in this community, in any highly religious, particularly I'd say Christian community, we non-negotiably cover and protect. That's what Jesus does. That's what we do. With the woman at the well, he recognized her deep need, insatiable need for a relationship, which she had tried to fill with men but failed, in such a liberating way that she drew her whole community to Jesus. She walked into the good works of faith he prepared for her to do. With a woman caught in adultery, he saved her life by effectively calling out the hypocrisy of her accusers, all the while exhorting her to live a life which falls short of God's design and best for her. With a woman who pours perfume on him in the only way she knows how, he affirms that wherever the gospel is preached, she will be remembered because she prophetically anointed his body for burial. He always covers, all redeems, always raises up, always gives people good works of faith to do. He deftly recovers monogamy from Genesis 2 in a polygamous context. He redefines the Genesis 1 creation narrative now in the light of the pain and suffering east of Eden. And radically, and Paul affirms this, releases everyone from human marriage. This is being completely unknown and completely crazy in the ancient world. Whereas I said, your your sons, your, your pension and your life insurance... He released everyone from marriage, instead commissions all his followers to spread the good news of the new creation after his death, resurrection, ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to the ends of the earth. 
Now we draw a line in the sand. People are to lay down their life to follow Jesus. They are to walk through the fire and water of God's agape, sacrificial love that is unending and completely restorative. Everything we put our identity in and seek belonging from, family, business, even community and social acceptance is to be laid down now and to take up, in order to take up that life, which is truly life, the kingdom of God. In this way, he fully dispels with any human attempt at self-righteousness. And I'm going to add now, including a higher vision regarding our cultural ethical guidance around consent. I wholeheartedly agree that the kingdom of God is built on consent and coercion is cruel. I also believe in a God who, whilst being crucified, forgave the most coercive system of execution known to humanity. On the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The offence and the glory of the good news is everyone's included. He covers all our sin, including any coercive acts. The gospel is good news for everyone, including and especially those with a violent past. In direct contrast to Jesus' context, Paul grows up in the Greco-Roman paganism of the Jewish diaspora. In almost every letter, Paul prohibits what has been translated as sexual immorality. Pornia, from which we get the word pornography. Because he is working with Gentile Christians who are almost entirely ignorant of the Torah. They know nothing about the garden narratives. They know nothing about what sex is for and what God is like. They have come to faith. They've experienced the power of God. They know Jesus has died and risen again. They've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. They're in Christian communities. And he writes to them in very, very strong language. Greco-Roman idolatrous practices almost entirely involved sex. For example, a few centuries before Paul's day, a thousand temple prostitutes serviced the worship of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, in the temple in Corinth. And in Paul's day, to Corinthianize meant to commit sexual immorality. If we could have the next slide up. So when he's writing to Corinth... He is right to the Corinthians. He's writing to believers. He's not speaking to non-believers. People who don't yet know God, he just shows what the power of God is like and the good news of the gospel to heal and save and restore. This is a discipleship issue, not an evangelism issue. He disciples young believers in the ways of Jesus, of which they are entirely ignorant because unlike their Jewish compatriots, they have no Hebrew Bible. They're just getting going. I'm going to read that in a minute, but uh, John Mark Comer in Loveology does a lovely little unpacking of it. Then we're going to read it and see how he brings an interpretation to it. Paul's, so this is me, sorry. Paul's repeated injunctions to flee, to leave, to crucify the flesh. Rather than standing firm in other places with temptation, on this issue, there's an urgency to leave it all behind. It's radically countercultural. It suggested he could see higher than these new believers in the Greco-Roman world. He could still remember Eden, those garden narratives, but he could also see a new Eden, a new creation, in a way that sex mattered, that marriage meant something, and this particular expression of intimacy was actually pointing to something else. And this is from John Mark Comer's analysis of this text. Corinth was near Athens, home to Plato, 
Aristotle and other Greek philosophers. Athens was the birthplace of dualism. So the idea of a spiritual world and a physical world was commonplace. Plato would say things like the body is the prison house of the soul. In Corinth, people were saying things like food for the stomach, stomach for the food, God will destroy them both. And this line of thinking started to make its way into these fledgling Christian communities, the church. The Corinthians started thinking about sex. Oh, it's just physical. I have a stomach, and when I get hungry, I eat. I have sex organs. When I get horny, I have sex with prostitutes. What's the big deal? It's just biological, nothing more. So Paul starts thinking about this thing called pornea. He writes, the body, however, is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. The phrase sexual immorality is pornea in Greek, and it's a junk drawer word. Paul means any and all forms of sexuality outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Everything from sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, casual sex, oral sex, adultery and prostitution, to porn, raunchy movies, adult films, strip clubs. It's all pornea. And it's a cheap parody of what God created in the garden. He's saying, don't you get it? Sex is about so much more than sex. Sex is about two people becoming one. God's view of sex is actually much higher than the world's. So as we read this, we can be thinking thinking of that cultural context and what he's doing with it. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Just as Jesus was compassionate, courageous and countercultural within his highly religious cultural context, so Paul is compassionate, courageous and countercultural within his highly permissive ignorant cultural context. I want us to feel the difference, the wisdom, the emotional intelligence we must all have. We need to glean where we're at and then act accordingly. Not necessarily always apply how Jesus worked or how Paul worked, but ask the Holy Spirit to show us what he's doing now in the world, how the Father is expressing his love in the world with these brilliant role models. Paul then goes on to articulate a radical idea, the natural conclusion of this messianic imagery of the marriage and divorce of the Old Testament, that marriage isn't about man's pleasure, human reproduction, or human legacy. It's about a prophetic sign of Christ and the church. And because the text, the whole text is messianic, including the Hebrew Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it always was actually always about that. The husband is designed to embody Christ's love for humanity and the wife is designed to embody humanity's response to Christ. They become little prophetic symbols 
of the new creation life to come. If you remember that Aristotle model of the household, he teaches into that and every single time he puts in Christian caveats. He intentionally both affirms and subverts the Aristotelian threefold household submission model in order to do something very shrewd. On the one hand, he affirms it as a means to preventing all cultural stumbling blocks to the gospel. The equivalent for me to now would be, I would go to a country, I might cover my arms, I might cover my hair, I will do anything not to cause such offence that no one wants to listen to what I have to say. You go with the cultural moment and honour the cultural context in order to be given a voice. We need cultural humility and Paul employs that. However, he also, in adding these cultural caveats to every single command, recovers the vision of Eden, a new way of mutual submission under the Jesus of the kingdom, an anticipation of the new Eden, radically, counterculturally, and it really did change the world forever. Leadership from now on is Christ crucified. Husbands, fathers and slaves in this example must themselves give an account to God and bear Christ in the way they treat those in their care. We can learn how to think through how Jesus and Paul handle their cultural context. In a highly religious culture, Jesus calls out the hypocrisy of the religious elite and covers those who are publicly shamed. Whilst Paul, in a highly permissive sexual culture, urges new followers to leave their old lives behind, lead the new lives in Christ, whilst deftly, and I think this is so impressive, taking a culturally valuable model, moral code, the Aristotelian model of the household, and he transforms it into a messianic vision. In the blink of an eye, marriage stops being a legal partnership, a way of securing good Roman legal citizens and sons. It stops for us being a source of happiness and fulfillment, our cultural why. And it starts to become a window into the new creation, Christ and the church. If we could go to the next one. I want you to feel this context as I read this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does for the church, for we are all members of his body. And then he makes the messianic text out of Genesis 2. He sees that it was always messianic. It was always pointing to Jesus, the creation narratives, all along. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So coming into land, everyone's done very well. The American dream, or its British equivalent, which by the way is a myth, is having that one special person, the house, 
And if you want children, you can have them. Or if you want a dog, you can have it. And some of you might just be happy with a cat. We need to be higher in the church. And if for one moment, I really want us all to hear this almost more than anything else. If for one moment we have colluded with that cultural ideal, I would say cultural idol, within the church by overly celebrating people getting married, finding that one special person and undervaluing everyone else or people who are in trauma on that journey, then we are no better than our ancient Israelite foremothers and forefathers who worshipped Canaanite gods such as Baal alongside and instead of Asherah. Uh, Yahweh. If we're thinking about marriage as finding that one special person that will make me happy and fulfill me, we have done the cultural equivalent of putting Asherah, the Canaanite goddess of fertility, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, and worshipped her alongside Yahweh, Jesus. We need to kick the cultural idol of that one special person out of the church. That doesn't deliver life. There is only one special person that delivers life, and his name is Jesus. This is simply a question of trust. That was the original issue in Genesis 2 and 3. Do we trust God's definition of good and evil? Trusting that his way always leads to goodness and human flourishing and fullness of life. Or do we redefine good and evil in our own understanding? Because deep down, we just don't trust he has our best interests at heart. We need to kick out all cultural idols of the church, in the church, and reimagining sex, sexuality, and gender as Jesus sees it. Jesus is the lens through which we read reality. The written word points to him, and as his followers, everything in our life is designed to do that too. There's the old adage, everything's about sex apart from sex, which is about power. I would critique that and say everything's about sex apart from sex, which is actually about Jesus. And I get loads of brownie points at Sunday school for saying the answer's always Jesus. Even sex, sexuality and gender, it turns out, was not about us at all, but about him and us truly bearing his image on the earth. At its best, this is Rebecca McLaughlin, marriage points us to the life-changing closeness of being with Jesus In the last book of the Bible, we see the marriage of Jesus and the church bringing heaven and earth back together. A human marriage can't remake the world, but the wedding of Jesus to his church will literally begin in a new, never-ending world, and we can be part of that new world. Both man and woman, fully authorized to minister in Christ, both fully human, the husband and wife become prophetic symbols of the new creation life to come. And you see at the end of Revelation, a reversal of Genesis 1 to 3. The shining serpent being is destroyed, is exposed as a myth. The new Adam, Christ, is laid down in his death. And a bride, a wife, is formed from his side, the church, a new Eve. Together, Christ and the church fulfill the Genesis 1 creation narrative of partnering together, male and female, to rule over the new creation. This is clearly a move towards the most truly progressive understanding of human sexuality. One man, one woman in full partnership for life, prophetically anticipating the male and female Christ in the church ruling over the new creation at the end of Revelation. And alongside this, all followers of Jesus are fully released from the burden of human marriage in this fallen world. 
to be free from its covenantal constraints and responsibilities, to devote all their energies to building the kingdom of God, to anticipate this greater reality, this new creation, this new Eden. Together, married and single people point to the love of Jesus for his church and for all humanity. And this is the vision I want to leave us with. This is our heartbeat here at Hope. We want to be one of these communities. Across the globe, millions of multi-generational, multicultural communities of such love, power, joy, peace, generosity, sharing and justice that people who don't yet know Jesus will yearn to know him through us. Thanks, Alice. Amen. That's our prayer. That's a a lot to digest, and um, I feel like we need to respond individually in prayers. But... um, I want to say yes to us being that that community of wholehearted Jesus followers. So Lord, I pray for um, what Alice has spoken. Thank you for her message this morning. And may we be, as a church, as individuals, as households, these people that show you to the world. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to feed us through what Alice has taught this morning and bring your life. Thank you. Amen.